for those of us who've taken a CAE, a lot of the answers and the questions are survey your members, ask your members, right? But when you ask, do you actually listen? And are you actively listening? And are you taking the feedback they're giving you and allowing yourself and the organization to shift strategies if need be? And so one thing that we're trying to pay attention to very closely is data. And so we're having kind of this shift that we have not quite reached a critical mass, but are getting close in so many areas of demographics, whether it's idealistic issues when it comes to how they practice or whether it's demographics, age, gender, race, all those things are changing in veterinary medicine. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with John Tremontana, CEO at the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association, or MVMA. John, welcome to the show. Joanna, thanks for having me. So excited to be with you. Hey, John, tell us about MVMA. We know it's a great organization, like so many associations out there, right? And we serve primarily veterinarians in Michigan, about 2,300 of them to be exact. And so we've been around a long time, since 1883, so about 104 years now. And as we continue to grow and evolve like most, you know, we want to continue to stay relevant, continue to serve our members. And so we're looking to, you know, how can we treat the profession and not just veterinarians too? And so this is something that we want to help promote and advance veterinary medicine throughout Michigan. And that's a way that we can bring more people under our tent, whether it's veterinary technicians who are the equivalent of human nurses or other staff. And so we just want to be able to improve the profession, make it attractive for people to go into, improve the lives of our members, both at work and however they want that to be in their personal lives as well. So this is an organization, I think, that focuses a lot on veterinary well-being, on continuing education, on advocacy, on a lot of the things that that a lot of our other colleagues and associations are focusing on. But it's a great organization that's been around for a long time because the members are so great, right? And when you have people who are actively engaged, who care about their profession and who care about each other, that's really the foundation of building a strong association. And we've been very fortunate to have that for a long time here in Michigan. So, John, you are licensed at the state level if you're a vet. That's correct. And so then the vets choose to become a member of MVMA. That's true. Yep. We're a professional organization. So we don't have every single licensed veterinarian in Michigan as a member of MVMA. That doesn't mean that's not our goal. But also, you know, you could be licensed in Michigan, not practice in Michigan too. So once you have your license, you could be living in a different state. You might practice in Michigan because maybe you have a vacation home here, or maybe you live on a bordering state and you have some clients from that state. So there's a lot of reasons why people would be licensed. They could still be retired and, and keep their license and maybe don't want to be a part of a professional association anymore. 
But yeah, those are the folks that we're after. And those are the folks who help contribute to make this such a strong organization because they lend their expertise, whether it's through education, whether it's through networking, whether it's through all of their experiences that they've had in that profession. And I think that really helps to make us pretty strong. So during the pandemic, my son, my younger son said, mom, I really want cats. It's lonely. I'm doing virtual education. He's not alone. Well, we tried to adopt cats and there were no cats to be had. So we finally said, okay, fine, let's foster some kittens. And then finally we got some cats. So John, what was it like during the pandemic when the hospitals, I guess, were full or we couldn't take our animals into the vet hospitals and the shelters were empty? which probably meant that there was an explosion of needed veterinary care. What was that like? I think it was stressful for everyone involved. It was stressful from the veterinarian's perspective on not being physically able and having the bandwidth to serve every potential client out there. I think it's stressful from a pet owner standpoint too, is you know maybe you're a new pet owner during the pandemic and now you don't have that immediate access to veterinary care that you need. And so I think there had to be a little bit of a shift in thinking in a shift in kind of a business approach to how they were going to do that. And we had a lot of members do a lot of different types of innovative practices that I think really helped solve that problem to an extent. Would have been nice to create a a few hundred more veterinarians in Michigan, right, to help, but we knew that that wasn't realistic. And so they really looked to technology to help them the same way that we all did, right? I mean, how many of us were very familiar, comfortable with Zoom three and a half years ago? I would say not too many. So they used, you know, FaceTime and other types of things to practice telehealth with their established clients. Telehealth with a border collie? Telehealth with a cat? Of course, if you need to, right? Especially if you have what we call a veterinary client-patient relationship established, right? And so even if you didn't, during COVID, a lot of things changed, right? A lot of rules changed. And so they were able to do things a little differently because they couldn't necessarily have the traffic in and out of the clinic that they normally would have. So a lot of curbside Uh, kind of treatment where they would go out to cars, bring animals in, you know, the clients would wait, the patient or the animal would go inside with the veterinarian. They'd FaceTime the appointment with somebody out in the parking lot or even somebody at home. If you're doing something maybe through technology over Zoom or FaceTime or what it may be, or even a phone call, you can see patients a little faster. So they were seeing more as they could. And luckily, we advocated to be able to have clinics fully open during covid the only thing they could not do for about two months was a spay or neuter surgery, which they got behind on. And that was tough, right? But we got through that. May, that was lifted. And so that really freed things up a little bit. But a lot have kind of continued the curbside service perspective even after COVID because they found business efficiencies, hmm. right? There are things that we all do now, good things that came out of COVID that led to more efficient business practices. And veterinarians are no different. They're business owners too, most of them who are running clinics. And so they're looking for new and innovative ways to maximize their potential with their teams to be able to see as many clients as possible, but to treat animals in a safe and effective way. And they had to do things a little differently during COVID like we all did, but I think they did it. But still, I mean, some of these people we hear from not having a day off in a year, two, three, you know, keeping their clinics open all the time, a lot of staff turnover because there's so much burnout we really have to focus on their well-being. And that's really important for us because this is a profession where you can get burned out very quickly. Veterinarians are likely putting animals down every day, which takes a toll on your mental health. So there's a lot of things that we as an association have to be aware of and cognizant of in order to help keep them refreshed 
rested and able to continue to do the job that they love and the job that they want to continue to do. Hey, John, you're doing many, many things to thrive. But before we get into those things, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become CEO of MVMA? It's kind of unique. It always is. I mean, when they ask you in kindergarten, and what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody says, I want to run an association, right? How many of us say that? But so many of us ultimately wind up there. And I think because the work is so attractive and we're kind of drawn in to this kind of service-oriented profession. And I think that that's really what sucked me in. I started out wanting to be a play-by-play sports broadcaster when I was younger, right? That's all I wanted to do. And so I went to Michigan State University for journalism, got my degree there, and somewhat evolved a little bit during school to become a a news person instead of just sports. And so I was a, a morning anchor for a while. I was a reporter for a while. And ultimately, at that point, I I made a shift into politics and public relations. And then I was leading a communications and marketing department at my previous association, the Michigan Association of School Boards. Spent five years there, loved the work, loved that service-oriented kind of focused job where school board members are just, in my opinion, wonderful human beings because they're so giving of their time. Agreed. They're not getting paid, at least not, right? And so that really, I think, made me pivot a little bit to a different type of mindset. And then when this position became open, my wife's previous PR firm had been doing some work here. I knew some people who had been involved in the organization, and they really encouraged me to step up and do that. I had turned down a CEO job for another association a few months prior, and I didn't know that I'd had the mental capacity to go through that process again. It's a rigorous kind of exhausting process, but Through their encouragement, I went through it. It happened very quickly. I think from the first time I talked to them to my hiring was about 10 days. Wow. Over holidays in late 2018. And so, you know, it just happened quickly. I didn't have a lot of time to think of it, but I'm so glad that I did that. And so moving from a broadcaster to a PR exec and then into this association role, it's a different path like almost everybody else, but it's so rewarding and so fulfilling. And when you find an association job, that you love and you have such a high respect for the profession that the members are participating in, I think that really motivates you to do great work on their behalf. And I think that's really important. We all want to be involved in something that we're passionate about. And this is an an industry that I have become very passionate about during my four and a half years here. And I'm still loving every day. I'm one of these people who could get bored very easily. And I usually have a three to five year life cycle and, and I'm not experiencing that here. And I think that's pretty spectacular to continue to have these types of challenges and continue to have a profession that's so rewarding and and members who are just so unique and so giving of their time and their expertise. It's just something that you want to be around all the time. Well, John, you've been there five years now and the organization is doing lots of different things. So let's dive into them. You say that a big part of your success is that you're listening to the members. Now, that sounds like a pretty obvious strategy, but tell us about that. <laughs> listening to your members, amazing. Right. For those of us who have taken a CAE, a lot of the answers in the questions are survey your members, ask your members, right? But when you ask, do you actually listen? Mm. And are you actively listening? And are you taking the feedback they're giving you and allowing yourself and the organization to shift strategies if need be? And so one thing that we're trying to pay attention to very closely is data. And so we're having kind of this shift that we have not quite reached a critical mass, but are getting close in so many areas of demographics, right? Whether it's idealistic issues when it comes to how they practice or whether it's demographics, age, 
gender, race, all those things are changing in veterinary medicine. Particularly, gender is one that we're paying close attention to because for a very long time, this was a male-dominated profession. And we went about continuing education in just a different way. And I, I don't want to get into any gender stereotypes here because that's not really what we're doing here. It's more so just listening to how they want to shift. And so our younger members are now incoming to veterinary schools, about 86% women. Wow. Where'd the men go? Right. And that, and that potentially could be an issue at some point, right? And so we want to be able to have the veterinary profession look like Michigan, look like America. Right. You know what? Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, depending on which data point you're kind of looking at. But we have heard from a lot of younger veterinarians who are starting out families, not all, but many of them. And they say, you know, we're super busy. You know, we're way busier than people used to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. We want to bring our families. We want to spend more time with them. Can we do some education or some events that are, are more family friendly and family focused? And so historically, we would maybe allow kids to come to a welcome reception or something like that, right? This year was just a monumental shift in how we approached our summer conference, which is smaller, historically only has about 130, 150 veterinarians. It's usually at a nicer northern Michigan resort that people can you know, enjoy and kind of have a quasi-vacation out of it. This year, we actually shifted to an indoor water park. Oh, It was something we had never done, and it was a little risky, and we were concerned, well... They say this, but sometimes we listen to them and we try things and they don't show up. They say they weren't this, but they don't come. And so let's roll the dice. Let's see what happens. So not only did we have the highest attendance that we've had in the 20 years of tracking data, we sold out. We had to turn people away. Wow. Which was very surprising to us. And, you know, I think one thing that was a key takeaway for this entire event was one woman came up to us, you know, working at registration on the last day. And, you know, when you have an event, you get a lot of anecdotal feedback from people. Oh, great event, great speakers, great content, whatever it may be. Some you remember more than others. And what this one woman said, I think really hit us. And she had told us, you've been working so hard. The clinic is so busy. I have not had a day off in a year. And I just want to thank you for having an event at a family-friendly facility, because these three days the most time I've been able to spend with my kids during that time. Wow. And that just hits a little differently. And I always try to say associations, especially professional associations, really work to improve the livelihoods of their members. I want to take it a step further here and make sure that we're trying to improve their lives, whatever that entails, however they want. They want more work-life balance. They want more efficiency in their business. They want to be able to hire people better who are working with them in a more collaborative manner. Okay, we're going to help you whatever it takes to get to where your life becomes easier because you're a member of this organization. And I think that's one of those times where it really resonates with us that, you know, the work that we're doing mattered to somebody today. And I think that that's really important because so many times we can get caught up in just what do our membership numbers look like? What do our event registrations look like? It becomes numbers. It becomes money. It becomes revenue. And we forget sometimes that we're actually here to serve a population. And when you make such a profound impact on someone the way that it felt like we did for this member, that's something that you take with you and it kind of rejuvenates your thinking and refreshes your energy in your mind and makes you think, yeah, this is why we got into this profession because we actually are making a difference. And I know it kind of sounds cliche, but it's it's something that is rewarding. And when you have those small victories, it's just a way to renew your focus and keep you thinking about the members and working to make their lives better. 
Well, John, you're in the service business. Your members are in the service business. If it's not about people, then what is it about, right? Correct. And so speaking of making changes in your members' lives, you've got something called the Power of 10 Leadership Academy, which really is a way to train the new members to be effective, successful, balanced vets. So tell us about that. This is a really interesting program. Yeah, it's a great program. It's a national program now that started with our counterparts in Indiana about 10, 12 years ago. And we were one of the early adopters to this. And, and basically, it takes 10 of our members every year and puts them into a leadership program. It's for younger veterinarians. So every year, 10 members. Every year. Yeah, 10 members. Sometimes it fluctuates 9, 11, whatever it may be, what the applicants are, right? We try not to turn people away unless we get way too many. But it's a free program. It's leadership development that not only allows them to learn more about us and MVMA, it allows them to learn more about their profession and understand how they can balance all of these things that they want to do, right? And so the first class that we do, we do about five or six in a year. And, and the first one is on a disc assessment. And we talk about their communication behaviors and how they interact with people, which is really beneficial because we want that group to become a close-knit group that relies on each other throughout their careers, kind of this, you know, network support group that they can have too. But we have classes on, you know, and sessions on personal finance, how to pay back your student loans, the best way to do that, investment opportunities, how to advocate. We have a day at the Capitol, they meet with their lawmakers. So there's a bunch of things that we do throughout this program that we think helps to fine tune their leadership skills, gets them to understand the profession holistically, but also engages them with our association. We have so many folks on our board of directors or who are chairing or on committees or in key volunteer positions right now who are Power of 10 graduates. Oh, I am not surprised. Yeah, and it's a network across the country too when they have reunions and they do different types of things. And so I think anything that you can do that engages your members early and often into your process and what you want to do and gets them to be believers in the association and understand the work that we're doing and the importance that we serve, I think it's a great opportunity to get them through the door. And Power of 10 has been one of those successful programs for us. Absolutely brilliant because what you're doing is you're taking probably self-motivated members, you're tying them to the organization, you're teaching them how to navigate the association, you're giving them a peer group, and you're helping them to be successful in their practices. So they're going to be successful vets who are with you for a long time. This is brilliant. We hope so. That's the goal, right? And I can't take credit for the idea. We just kind of globbed onto it. It was the thought child of people smarter than me. But I think anytime you can borrow brilliance, you should be doing that too. I mean, anybody can create a program like that. And I think when you, like you said, Joanna, to have them motivated and to have them interested is great because this is building your farm team. This is your bunch. These are the people who are one day going to lead your organization, who are going to be representing your organization right? and who want to have that responsibility. And it's also a selfishly a great way for our team to get to know these folks. And so we want to be able to know as many members as possible on a personal level, understand them, understand their needs, their wants. And I think, you know, having those types of opportunities for people to get their foot in the door really helps to build and grow your association rather quickly. Hey, so speaking of getting to know your members, you just added a whole lot of members through your new organizational member type. So previously, all the members were individuals. But as of, I guess, sometime in 2022, you now have an organization-based membership. So tell us about that. Why'd you decide to do it? And what's that doing to membership? 
you know, we looked at it, it's a common model and, and somewhat of a trend that's happening in associations that we've seen. We've seen ASAE do it here in Michigan. MSAE has done it. Yep. Some other of my colleagues across the country, it's a different kind of model, but similar also off organizations. We thought it was a way not only to bring more people under our tent, but to have more voices at the table, have more ideas, have more innovation taking place. But it was really an opportunity to treat the profession holistically. And I think even veterinarians will tell you, even though they're the doctors and they're the decision makers and they're you know doing a lot of that work when it comes to medical decisions, they're not doing it alone. They have a team just like the rest of us do for the most part. And so we want to be able to treat those veterinary teams so they're all working together in a way that is cohesive and collaborative and ultimately benefits animal health. And so when we bring in veterinary technicians, which is the equivalent to nurses in human medicine, or we bring in assistants, or we bring in other office staff or clinic staff or large animal staff who are visiting out in farms and, and meeting with farmers to help treat animals too, when they're all understanding and kind of the same material, the same kind of methods, those types of things, it makes the profession stronger. Mm. And it also brings a diversity aspect to us in a way that, you know, veterinarians can maybe sometimes like we all can in a leadership role, maybe we get into our bubble. We need to be able to listen to people, hear what others are experiencing, learn from that, become more empathetic. And I think all of those things are really advanced by trying this organizational membership. And we only have a handful so far, right? It's it's not an explosion of members, but we've had quite a few come in, especially larger entities, bring in a lot of members who maybe normally would not have been members. And I think that that's a really important shift by our board. This was something they were thinking about a few years ago, and it finally came to fruition last year when it was launched. And so I think that it's an opportunity for people to just do what's best for their practice, their clinic, their organization. If you want to just keep your individual membership, that's perfectly fine. We still do that. This is a membership model that is in addition to and not in lieu of. And so anytime that we can diversify our offerings to our members to better suit what they're looking for, the likelihood that they're going to become a part of our organization increases, right? And so we need to have things that are good options for folks. One size fits all doesn't really work all the time anymore, right? When we look at all these different things that we do, we're, we're into so much customization everywhere we go, everything we do. Every time we turn on cable, like we're going to choose, oh, are we going to keep cable? Or are we going to choose what streaming devices we want? What do we like to watch? How do we like to handle things? It's no different in associations. People still want options. They want to be able to do what suits their needs best at time. And it's our responsibility to provide that. Well, I think what's neat about this is even the front desk person now has access to your resources where previously they couldn't be members. Correct. Well, we had like a support step one, but it was very, very limited in, in who was a member. And, and a lot of people didn't see the value. And so if you can create value for that person, that's important. So one of the things that we're looking to do is create more educational opportunities, more training opportunities for people in any aspect of veterinary medicine. So maybe we'll have a customer service training session if you're answering the phone or you're writing prescriptions for clients or dealing at the front of house, that maybe that wasn't available to veterinary organizations before and now we can provide that. So you have to be able to, once you bring those people in, figure out a way to keep them because if there's no value for them, why would they be here? Right. That's another aspect in how we serve our members. You know, we have a diverse membership when it comes to practice discipline. So the veterinarians that most people think of, the pet veterinarians, companion animals, mostly dealing with dogs and cats and household pets, that's about 80% of our membership. But the other 20% have crucial roles in other places. Some are working 
in the food supply, in large animals. I mean, some are working with equine horses and some are working in what we call industry, which could be pharmaceuticals or research or other things. And they all have such an important role to play. We have to figure out an association how to serve them too. Ah. All of our programming, all of our content can't just be geared toward those companion animals because otherwise, why would the other 20% even bother with us? Because if I'm working for Purdue Farms, yes, I don't have an individual practice. So those types of courses won't matter to me. So you got to find something else that will matter to me. Especially if those courses focus on dogs and cats. Ah, yes. If you're not working with dogs and cats at all, how is that benefiting you and your career? So there's a way that in some ways we have to try to be all things to all people. And we obviously can't. We only have a team of five and a half here. And so we can't do everything that we want to do because we just don't have the bandwidth. We have to pick and choose, but we have to figure out a way to make sure we're offering them something of value. We've had that mentality for a while now. And so this organizational membership and bringing in different professions and different aspects of veterinary medicine is not necessarily shifting how we think. It's just shifting a little bit of what we do. Associations are all, always about creating and finding value. If you provide value, people are going to join. And so once we have those people, we have to continue to provide and create that value. And if we don't, we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, if we were them, why would we join your organization? Yeah, but John, if you've got members who are treating dogs and cats in urban environments and rural environments, and then you've got you know vets who are working with farm animals, do you provide services that are specific to the vets working with farm animals, or are there common threads where everyone needs it? And maybe this is where advocacy comes in. So like, how do you provide services to everybody? Both, right? It's hard. And so you have to figure out how to balance that. So we've got our large conference coming up that has about a thousand people attend every year that takes place in fall. And we have 14 tracks going on at one time. Ah. So we'll have multiple companion animal tracks, we'll have food animal tracks. We have a track on animal behavior, animal welfare, diversity, equity, and inclusion, business and finance, all these different types of aspects that people can shift in between. We have a lot of our members too, not a lot, but we have members who are also mixed practice, who do both large and companion animal. And so we have to be able to diversify our offerings, but some of those come about with strategic partnerships too. And our office is just a few miles away from Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. So we work with them on some of these aspects. We partner with them, particularly on large animal education that we do for folks too, because they have some facilities there and, and they're housing things, whether it's cattle or horses or whatever it may be. So you can actually do some interactive types of education on site with them. And so it's just looking for organizations to partner with, to do things. If we can't do everything well, who are the people in the industry who are doing it well? And can we contribute and partner with them to make it even better? You know, can we give them access to our members? Can they give us access to facilities? I mean, it's all these strategic partnerships that I think associations are, are thinking about and contemplating all the time. So, John, is advocacy a thread that concerns everybody? And what are some of the issues in your space? Yeah, for sure. I mean, advocacy is a big issue. And, you know, there's a lot of animal welfare types of causes that could come up. And, you know, when you're advocating on behalf of an association, you have to do what's best for the profession. And sometimes the public doesn't always agree with you. So I'll give you an example. If somebody introduces a ban on cat declawing, you know, if we come out against a ban, it doesn't automatically mean that we're in favor of declawing cats. It just means that we believe as an organization the doctor should be making that decision. Uh, and sometimes that is even controversial within your own membership. So you got to balance things, right? 
what do the members say? Listen to them, survey them. And, you know, I think we see kind of an ideological shift on some of those kind of practice discipline issues and scope of practice along, I would say, generational lines, right? And people feel different about it in different generations. And so a lot of our members just say, you know what, I don't believe in catechlawing, I'm just not going to do it. And maybe eventually it'll work its way out of the profession, right? So there are other types of things that come up that we alert because we want doctors making those decisions with their patients, with their clients, and doing what's in the best interest of the animal. And again, like I said, that's not always popular with the public, but that's something that we're going to fight for because it's best for our members. Another thing that we're trying to do right now is opening our Veterinary Practice Act that has not been updated in over 40 years. And veterinary medicine is not practiced the same way that it was 40 years ago. So what is that? What is the Veterinary Practice Act? Just basically is is a law that tells you how you can practice and what you can do and what is the defined scope of veterinary medicine and that type of thing. You know, there's been so many technological advances in that time that things have shifted. Telehealth has come on board. And so updating that practice act to make sure that it really demonstrates what it means to practice veterinary medicine in the 21st century is important. So advocacy is, is a common thread. It's big. You know, I wouldn't say it's not controversial. It's controversial sometimes almost everywhere, depending on the issue. But we try to do what's in the best interest of the majority of our members, the majority of the profession, a lot of the times what's in the best interest of the public as well. But, you know, it's a fine line for us to really walk at times. But we, at least during my tenure, have become much more proactive in this. We want to write legislation. We want to get our priorities into legislation rather than just reacting when some other organization or a lawmaker drops something and then we decide yes, we support, no, we don't, or we're neutral, right? That's not advocating, that's reacting. And so advocating is actually voicing your issues and working to get your issues on the table and passed into law. And so that's really a shift that we've taken in the last four to five years too, which has, I think, led to some pretty successful results for us so far. So John, before we go, I got to ask you, how's membership? You know, membership is great. We can still grow, which is what we're going to do. You know, we, in my tenure, we have never really had the opportunity like I've wanted to from the beginning to put together a membership recruitment campaign or to do a public advocacy campaign for the profession. And those are things that I still have on my agenda that I want to do. You know, I came in a little over a year before COVID and then obviously it's just kind of treading water and you're trying to survive in advance at that point and things shift. And so you're getting as information to your members as much as possible, and you're not really focusing on strategic initiatives. And so now I want to be able to focus on some of those, continue to grow. Organizational membership was a part of that, but we need to go right to the people who aren't members and ask, why aren't you members? Mm. Not like, oh, come join us, right? Here's where we can do all these things. I want to know, why aren't you a member? It's that listening thing again. Yeah, right. You got to listen. Where where are we falling short as an organization where you don't see enough value to spend money to become part of this organization? And I think that that's really important, too. And that could include listening tours around the state, you know, a lot of surveys and that type of thing. And focus groups, I think, are always important. But really listening, figuring that out. And, and maybe we have a blind spot. Maybe there's something we could be doing better or we think we're doing well or we're falling short with a specific group of people or there's a different aspect of veterinary medicine that we could help grow or nurture and we're missing that opportunity. So, you know, I'm always looking to grow. I'm always looking to do new things, innovative things, find efficiencies and find good ideas no matter where they come from. I don't care if it's a good idea and it's going to benefit our members. Giddy up, let's do it. 
Nice. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for sharing what you're doing at MVMA. You'll have to come back because I want to hear about the membership recruitment campaigns and how the annual (laughs) conference goes this year, because this is probably going to be a big year for you. If you had a great big summer conference, you're probably likely to have a great big annual conference and we want to hear about your success. We're hoping so, Joanne. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing what you do too. You know, just it's so enlightening to even talk to you and listen to you talk to others too. And this, it's a great podcast. We really appreciate all that you're doing for the industry as well. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye! Bye!